Our New Testament reading is from Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? among those who invoked this name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. So for the second time, the Pharisees called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. You know that Jesus, 
is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he's a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins. Are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. The one who is speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for your love, for your son. We thank you for your word and spirit. We pray now that you would be with us and bless us as we open your scriptures and that you would use this time to draw us toward you, to open us toward you, to renew us in your presence, to remake us in your image, and to send us from here as your servants, like Jesus, loving you and loving neighbor, in Christ's name. So would you take this time and do with it whatever you would. We love you, we trust you, and we ask for your blessing through Christ our Lord. Amen. What's your story? How do you answer that question when somebody asks you? What is your story? And maybe more particularly, where does God feature in your story? What does your faith mean to you? And how might you articulate your faith to someone else who might just be curious about your life? You know, if you're a person of faith or have been for some time, perhaps that's something that you've actually pondered or wrestled with or practiced is telling your own story, uh, articulating who God is to you and what difference God makes in your life. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not someone who identifies as a Christian or a person of faith, but you're here because you're exploring, uh, I'd ask the question maybe a different way. You know, if you're searching for something, 
you know, how would you articulate what it is that you're searching for and why that feels important to you? Wherever you are this morning, I'm glad you're here. You're not alone, right? Uh, there are others in similar situations who are feeling similar things to what you're feeling. There are people here just like you if you're one who's feeling spiritual dryness. You're not alone. Or if you're feeling perhaps that you don't have a lot to say right now, that your faith has been on autopilot, especially during this pandemic time and you're just kind of coasting, you're not alone. Or if you're someone who sees yourself as being kind of in mid-process of deconstruction and you don't know where that process is gonna ultimately lead you, you're not alone. There are others in the room who are feeling that exact same thing. Or if you're someone who's desiring more of God and you're looking for renewal, but you don't know how to go about doing it, either that you literally don't know what to do or just that because of the stuff of life and your busyness or just you got kids or you work a lot, you just, it's hard to find the time. If that's where you are, you're not alone. Or maybe you are someone who has a lot to say about your own personal experience with God. You have stories to tell. You've tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord in really powerful and profound ways. And you can put words to that, but you wonder if anybody wants to hear it. You struggle with knowing, is there an appropriate venue for even sharing that? Because it just seems like talking about faith is taboo these days. You're not alone. Wherever you are this morning, I'm glad you're here. It's good to be together. God knows you, God sees you, God loves you, and the good news of Jesus is for you. And my prayer is that as we open up this scripture and sit with this text, that God would meet us in this moment. Because what we have in this text is um, we have two stories of individuals meeting God in a really profound way. We have stories of these two individuals, Saul and Ananias, each encountering God uh, in their own way, but as part of this same story, right? As the story of the Holy Spirit's activity that we're tracing through this book of Acts, as it continues to unfold, as this movement of God's Spirit continues to spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, we see that God is on the move in a way that will now enfold these two individuals, Saul and Ananias in very particular and profound ways. So where are we in this story? If you remember, if you've been with us, if you've been working your way through the book of Acts with us this summer, you'll remember the book begins with the risen Jesus teaching for 40 days, right, about the kingdom of God before he ascends up into heaven and he tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the gift. And then the gift comes on the day of Pentecost and this ascended Jesus pours out his spirit on the church and it's like all power breaks loose. And you see the disciples in Jerusalem begin to say and do amazing and powerful things. And the number of those who are following Jesus begins to grow. And as soon as that happens, you begin to see that they start to draw the heat from the religious establishment because this new movement of the spirit is disrupting the status quo and the people who are in power don't like it. And so they bring the disciples in for questioning. They're like, explain yourselves and please slow your roll. Stop it. You are disrupting too much. But the disciples respond in the power of the Spirit saying, how could we do anything else? 
We've encountered the living God, the Messiah. We've encountered the crucified and risen Christ. We've encountered the power that we've all been longing for, the one that makes all things new. We've experienced it personally. There's an authority higher than the highest authority you can imagine, and his name is Jesus. And we're on his team, and you could be too. And you see, as this, they begin to continue to proclaim this message and demonstrate with mighty deeds what God is doing, the religious leaders begin to in interpret what they're saying as speaking against the law of Moses and against the temple, against the establishment, and you see the persecution begin to ratchet up a notch, right? And you see Stephen arrested, and he's stoned to death. And what we find in the story at that point is that there's this young man named Saul who was there. And all the witnesses who are watching Stephen be stoned, they're laying their cloaks at the feet of this young man named Saul. It's a gesture of deference and respect, a way of saluting this young man, so to speak. And it says that Saul approved of this killing of Stephen. And then as the story goes on into chapter 8, we read that a that day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. That's the same Saul that we're going to meet today in our story in Acts chapter 9. Of course, there's one story that happens in between. We looked at it last week. Cindy looked at it last week, the story of Philip, who goes into Samaria and encounters this Ethiopian eunuch. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and watch the sermon on YouTube. Uh, she did a great job of unpacking that story for us. But we pick up here in Acts chapter 9 with Saul, the same Saul who was approving of the stoning of Stephen who was receiving this salute from the witnesses of that event and who was going door to door ravaging the church in Jerusalem by dragging out the women and men who were following Jesus and having them arrested. Saul, he's a hunter of Jesus' followers. He's a violent defender of God and God's righteousness as he understands it. He's a, he's a by any means necessary kind of guy. Saul, he's a closed-off, self-assured policer of the boundaries of orthodoxy. He's the dogmatic watchdog who's seeking to serve God by defending God against all those among God's people who are doing it wrong and who are influencing others. I imagine Saul, if he were alive and active today in this mode, he would be like, that internet troll, right? Who's just like doing nothing but perusing the internet, looking for people who are saying things that are bothersome. Who's always calling out heresy wherever he sees it, right? Using the term slippery slope a lot. But Saul isn't just verbally combative. He actually has legal authority to round up and arrest followers of the so-called way which is how they're describing those who are following Jesus as those of the way. And he's now gone to the high priest in Jerusalem to get authorization to extend his jurisdiction beyond Jerusalem so that he can now go north to Damascus to round up followers of the way who are all the way up there. It's kind of weird, actually. 
This isn't like normally how things were done. Paul is like a, like a self-starter, ambitious go-getter on this crusade to round up followers of the way. And now he's gotten authorization to go hunting. But as he's traveling on the road and he gets near to his destination, Damascus, something really unexpected happens. Jesus meets him on the road. Now, the term Damascus Road experience has become kind of a shorthand in our culture for like this life-changing experience, right? It's this, it's this, it's become almost, um, yeah, it's become a, a fixed phrase uh, that refers to this, the moment I saw the light or some, some event in our life that changes us profoundly and reorients us, gives us a new trajectory forward. Well, it comes from this episode right here. It's one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible about God meeting an individual and doing something remarkable. So what happens? So Saul, he's traveling with his crew up to Damascus. Well, down to Damascus if you're going topographically, up if you're going by way of the compass. But he's going to Damascus, and this light kind of breaks out. And he falls to the ground, and he hears this voice. Saul, Saul, why are you hurting me? Now, there are only a few times in the Bible where God directly addresses someone by calling their name twice. And it's always really important. So we find it here. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you hurting me? And even the nature of the question tells us something really remarkable about God. Why are you hurting me? Jesus expresses this profound solidarity with his people who are suffering. He feels their pain personally as his own. Why are you hurting me? Now that's, that's a question that in our typical experience we hear from the voices of victims, right? Why are you hurting me is a question that often arises from the powerless to the powerful, asking them why. And it's usually a question for which there is no good answer but just to stop. Why are you hurting me? This is the question Jesus asks Saul on the road. Jesus in solidarity with his people, inquires of Saul. And Saul, in his perplexity, inquires of Jesus. Who are you, Lord? He knows he's speaking to the Lord. This is the Lord he has studied and served his whole life. Paul has been a rigorous student of the scriptures. His life's ambition is to be a teacher of the Bible and a leader of God's people. He's good at it. He's gotten recognition for it. He's climbing the ladder, so to speak, within that world. But here he's finding himself prostrate on the ground before God who's speaking to him. And obviously he's missed something important. And so he's asking the question, who are you, Lord? This is kind of a burning bush moment if you know that story from the book of Exodus where Moses is there and he's just off tending his sheep 
in the desert and he sees this bush that's burning but not being consumed and there's a voice that comes from the bush that's calling Moses into this encounter with God and he's like, tell me your name. And he gets this answer of, I am who I am. And from there, the whole story of the Exodus unfolds as Moses goes and serves this Lord who's revealed himself by name to Moses in a unique and personal way. We're here with Saul now on this road to Damascus. We get a similar moment. We get this blinding light. We get this question, who are you, Lord? And this time, the answer he hears is not the same exact answer Moses heard. I am who I am. This time... I am Jesus. The Lord has a new name, a name Saul had not recognized as belonging to the Lord. And he, in this moment, has to deal with this new revelation from God. That this one, the living God, the creator of all things, the one who bound himself to the people of Israel and led them faithfully through the sea and through the wilderness and into the land and through all the days of the kingdom, who's now promised to restore the nation of Israel through the Messiah, this Lord is now identifying himself to Saul by the name of Jesus. And in that moment, Paul has to recognize the absolute scandal of what God has done. God has bound himself to human flesh. The abstract notion of God that, that Saul has been studying his whole life in the scriptures, this abstract idea that is now that he's been trying to apply to his life through principles and laws, this Lord has made himself concrete in human flesh. He's bound himself to humanity and a human body. He's bound himself to a particular people who now receive his body and blood as nourishment, who are buried with him in baptism and who rise with him into this new way of life that they're now calling the way. The very people Saul is hunting. Just imagine what this would have been like for him. I mean, he's a rising star and the religious establishment. He's, he knows what's what. He's the guy that's got the answers. He's the guy that studied the Bible more than anybody else. He's the expert. He has every reason to be confident that he's on the right track. He has the pedigree. He has the success, the recognition. He's got this new promotion to now go out to Damascus and like go do what you're doing here out there. Thomas Merton, the Catholic mystic, says that sometimes we'll spend our entire life climbing the ladder of success only to realize at the end that the whole time it was leaning against the wrong wall. That's Paul. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's Saul. He will become the apostle to the Gentiles that we know as Paul soon enough. But God mercifully disrupts Saul's life and mission in this moment. He mercifully disrupts. And he gives him a new life and a new mission that's going to define him the rest of the days. He's going to be Paul, apostle to the Gentiles. And so he's blinded and he has to be taken by the hand. He has to be guided to Damascus. And he's there for three days as a blind man who has got to be 
beside himself, just reeling from what it is that he's just experienced and now having to depend upon the care of others. And so he's there in Damascus, in the place he set out to go, and he's praying. And then we get the story of this other person, Ananias. So now Ananias is a disciple in Damascus, right? And he both kind of arrives on the scene and disappears from the scene in this story without much fanfare. He's just sort of there. And then after he does his thing with Saul, he's kind of gone. He's just there for, for a moment. He has this vision of the Lord. And he responds in a faithful fashion. Here I am, Lord. It's reminiscent of prophets of old like Isaiah or you think of like Mary responding to the angel. Here I am. And the Lord tells him to go to this appointed place to find Saul of Tarsus and to lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Now, again, this is, this is a story that probably feels wild to us, right? It's like, I don't know about you, but I've never had, a, had an experience where I was traveling on a road and experienced a blinding light that knocked me on my face that made me blind for days only to have someone come and cure me. That's not my story, right? Nor is it my story that my call to pastoral ministry began with some vision of the Lord that said, go to this place and I will bring you a people. And by the way, they will have had the same vision and it will be confirmed upon your meeting. We don't have stories like that, most of us, but you know, some do, actually. Especially those who spend their lives in parts of the world and among peoples uh, who have not actually been exposed to the Spirit and the church. There are stories today that you will hear if you spend time with those who've lived their lives in those kinds of part, in those parts of the world. And they're profound and compelling. God does actually do this kind of thing today. I've not experienced it. And if you haven't, that's not surprising. But those stories are out there and they're real. And there's another one here that happened in this remarkable moment with Ananias. And so he has this vision and it's very specific. Like, go to this address on this street and you'll find this guy and he's going to be praying. And when you find him, lay hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Now, how does Ananias answer the Lord in this moment? With profound honesty. He's like, wait a minute. Saul of Tarsus? I've heard of him. He's dangerous. He's the guy that's been going around and arresting people like me. He's been dragging women and men out of their homes and putting them in prison and bringing them for questioning. And we heard about Stephen. One of these guys that was brought in for questioning ended up stoned to death. This is a dangerous guy. He's a killer. And the Lord answers him saying, I've chosen him to be an instrument, right? I've chosen him to be my servant. I'm going to do big things with this guy. I've chosen a future for him that is different than what you've seen from him so far. And so Ananias has a decision to make in that moment. He can do like the safe and reasonable thing, which is to like not go find the guy who's come to this town to arrest him and people like him. Or he can trust the Lord and act courageously, trusting that there's a different kind of future for Saul, that God is actually up to something powerful. I wanted to read for you an excerpt from Willie Jennings' commentary on Acts because I love the way he treats the story of Ananias 
But if you would indulge me, let me just read uh, a, a couple of paragraphs from this because it's just so beautiful. And I couldn't wordsmith this in any way that was as good as what he wrote. So I'm just going to share the good things with you that I've also received. So here he is, he's talking about Ananias. And he writes this. So now a disciple must, make, must face a decision. Do I act on a truth about someone, a truth that may put me in danger, or do I follow the word of the Lord and touch this dangerous person? Luke does not tell us whether Ananias was afraid of Saul, but only that he was honest with God. We must not run past his honesty with God. He reminds God that Saul is a killer, and God in turn calls Saul his vessel who will carry the name of Jesus. God sees us differently, no doubt. But the question always for disciples is, can we see with God? Can we see those who are in rumor or truth dangerous as God sees them, with a future drenched in divine desire? Ananias, in this regard, is given sight of another person's future. God has shown him the road Saul will travel to Gentiles, to kings, to the people of Israel, and to suffering. So Ananias goes to Saul, armed with Saul's future and not his own. And a little bit later, he says this, writes this. The meeting with Saul is beautifully rendered by Luke. Ananias touches him, saying, Brother Saul, he acts inside a conclusion. God has already claimed this man and made him one with the other disciples. We cannot say that Ananias no longer sees Saul as a dangerous killer. We must say that he indeed acts in faith, touching and believing in the power of God to heal and transform. Something falls from Saul's eyes and he can see again, but Ananias now disappears from the story his work done. Ananias is now enfolded inside the actions of Saul. Saul is baptized, he breaks his fast, and he regains his strength. Yet Ananias was there for the crucial time of blindness, when someone could not see their way and did not know their future. Luke makes sure we see the courageous actions of this disciple, even if Saul does not. Ananias' story is so beautiful, so powerful, so small, but so instrumental in the story of Saul, who becomes one of the most powerful and important ministers of the gospel in all of history. So what do we do with these two stories? Probably your own story, if we get back to our opening question, what is your story? It's probably not that. Maybe for some of you, you have a fairly dramatic story of how God met you in darkness and brought you to light. Some do, but some of you don't. And what I want to encourage you with is just simply to say, that's okay. I think one of the challenges we live with in our cultural moment in the church is that we've, many of us have grown up with this emphasis on conversion stories where we've, we've been taught to think that the authenticity of our faith is grounded in some sort of dramatic change moment, that we can talk about a past event where we can clearly see how in that moment God made us different, a Saul kind of story. But the reality is for most of us, 
the, the way that we come to faith is because people older than us nurtured us in the faith. And as young people, we were given something of an inheritance spiritually that we grew into. And rather than being like a lightning bolt that strikes us one day, for most of us, faith is more like a slow cooker that eventually warms up. And you can't really remember that moment when you got hot, right? It just sort of happened. And I would just encourage us to say that, you know, as we like bring our children for baptism, as we take vows as church members, and we, we like promise to pray for our kids and raise them in the faith and model an example for them, what we're actually hoping for and longing for, the beautiful vision of our normal story of faith is the slow, boring one, that I never knew a day when I didn't know the love of Jesus. I've always known at one level or another There wasn't a moment that was like a lightning bolt that shook me to the core. Rather, it was something that just grew over time. And I can tell you more powerful stories about particular decisions I've made or particular relationships I've been in or particular particular, uh, decisions I had to make vocationally or about life trajectory kind of stuff that God met me in those moments and helped me to make a choice on faith rather than on fear, a choice of trust, rather than a choice of unbelief. If you're a person who doesn't have that like exciting conversion story that's worthy of like a movie trailer, you're okay. (laughs) N.T. Wright says, you know, to ask someone for their conversion story as proof of, of a vital faith is like asking someone for their birth certificate to prove that they're alive today. That's not how we know you're alive. You check for vital signs, right? What authenticates your faith today is not a conversion story from the past. It's the fruit of the Spirit now. Are you walking in the way? Are you loving God and loving neighbor? Can you tell stories about how the grace of God is greater than your own sin? Can you tell stories about how the love of God has met you in your deep need? How trusting God has enabled you to love someone who's difficult to love? or to take steps of faith that were hard, to be generous with your time or your money in ways that are actually really countercultural. Can you tell those stories? Can you tell stories about how you were spending time in prayer with other people and you heard someone else voice the very longing of your heart and you experienced what it meant to be in solidarity with God and God's people in that moment? Can you tell stories of feeding upon Christ, his flesh and blood as you come to the table and are nourished in him alongside a bunch of other people who need to be nourished. These are the stories that mark our lives and the stories we need to be able to tell are not simply past tense conversion stories of a moment when we were brought from darkness to light, but the present tense stories about how the light dawns in the darkness of today how God calls forth from us faithful action and provides for us everything he requires of us. These are the stories we need to cultivate and tell. And as we think about the stories of Saul and of Ananias, and we think about all that is extraordinary about them and maybe different from our own personal stories, I would just like to end our time today by calling to our attention just a few features of their story that I think are actually similar to the kinds of stories we can and should and will be able to tell 
of our own lives. Five features, all very short, I promise. The first is disruption. God interrupts the status quo. God shows up in ways that were unexpected. It's gracious in some cases, many cases, it's painful. But God cares about particular people. And God cares about this great mission that he's up to in the world. God cares about involving you in what is good and bringing you home, bringing you onto his team where he's making all things new. And so he will meet you and disrupt things in your life and in my life where we are seeking to live as our own lords and not under his lordship. We're seeking to build our own kingdoms and not his. He will disrupt that in gracious ways. And there's an invitation to receive the disruption as a gift. And when we do that, it transforms us from being closed, like Saul, to being open, like Saul when he meets Ananias. So disruption, number one. Second one is vulnerability. We see God bring both Saul and Ananias to a place of vulnerability. Saul has to depend upon others, right? He's blind and he's completely disoriented. Everything he's built through his whole life gets basically thrown into the wind. And he has no idea what to do next. That's got to be terrifying. Ananias is brought into this space where faith for him looks like actually going to meet a guy who is only there because he intended to arrest him. And that's his mission field. These are vulnerable, vulnerable spaces. And the irony is that the freedom that the Spirit brings into our lives is a freedom we only really begin to experience when we are vulnerable. Yet if you and I are honest, we spend most of our time and energy trying to insulate ourselves against being vulnerable. I don't want to be vulnerable. don't want to be exposed. don't want to be needy, right? don't want to be weak. don't want to be short on resources. And so we try to insulate ourselves from these threats. We try to do everything we can to be strong and not vulnerable. Yet, there's something profoundly important about vulnerability as the means by which God liberates. Can we learn to tell those stories? Can we take those steps of courage and faith and make ourselves vulnerable to God and one another? The next two features follow closely uh, on the heels of that, and they are simply dependence and trust. Each of these people becomes dependent upon God's protection and grace. And they have to trust God in moving forward in ways that are really uncomfortable. They're not coloring inside the lines of what seems reasonable or normal to them. God is taking them way beyond the boundaries of their comfort zones, and they have to trust God. And their participation with God and whatever will happen next is entirely dependent on whether or not they will take steps of trust independence upon him or whether they will retreat from that trust and go back into their places of safety and certainty. So disruption, vulnerability, dependence, trust, and lastly, testimony. Saul, in his transformation, begins to go to his people and proclaim the very thing that he was trying to keep others from proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah. And everybody's completely shocked to hear it because this is the guy arresting people for saying that. And now he's saying that. And so his testimony becomes simply, because of what I've experienced of God, I have something to say, and this is it. Jesus is the Messiah. 
Ananias has a testimony too, right? He meets God in this way and he has to come to Saul and he has to bear witness to what God has revealed him. I'm supposed to touch you and give you your sight back. Brother, I know your brother, Saul. Disruption, vulnerability, dependence, trust, testimony. I think these five things are actually features for each of us that are available to us, that God invites us into, to have our lives disrupted and reoriented in him, to become vulnerable toward God and one another, to become dependent upon God's provision in ways that are not not the self-reliance that we're so often taught, to be trusting God and even learning to be trusting and trustworthy in community. And then lastly, to be those who bear witness to Christ, not as jerks, not as defenders of God. We don't have to defend God. He's, a, he's good. But as those who've been freed from all the things that formerly enslaved us, for those who've been renewed in a peace that we cannot make with our own hands or our own ambitions, who've been unleashed in freedom and love to live into the world in a way that is more beautiful and compelling than any other story can give us. And to do that winsomely and authentically, not as those who feel the need to drum up some larger-than-life Hollywood conversion story that turns somehow my quiet unbelief into vibrant faith and makes it into some sort of like disaster movie that's worthy of your rapt attention, but rather that we can authentically and meaningfully speak about the ways God is meeting us today in the little things of our lives and calling forth from us the faith and the hope and the love that allow us to move toward the Saul's of our lives with the kind of love of Ananias, or that allow us to move into the world of our own people with a testimony like Saul's. I promise you, Jesus is the one. I can tell you stories. Each of us is invited by God into a story that's real and personal and powerful like that. And it's okay if today you don't have any idea what that story would sound like. But the invitation from God is, will you take the next step today of that next step forward in faith toward him, toward community, toward service? And will you let him be the author of your story and whatever happens next? That's the invitation of the gospel. That's the movement of the spirit. And that's my prayer for each and every one of us that we would get caught up in that. Now let's pray. Almighty God, creator, sustainer, redeemer of all things. We thank you for our life. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the renewing whirlwind of your spirit and the liberation that you bring us in Jesus. Remake us today in your image, we pray, and unleash in us the life of God, that we may live in the beauty and warmth of your divine desire, and that we may look with eyes of faith and love upon our neighbor, armed with the future that you promise, and not just our own personal futures that we're seeking to safeguard. Make us servants of you and your great work of love. We pray all of this through the name of Jesus, our Savior, who is the Messiah. Amen.